This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, O Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Let me say just a word to you. This... This tremendous crowd at four o'clock in the morning represents hundreds of millions of American people who are now ready to see our nation unified. And I want to congratulate the toughest and most formidable opponent that anyone could possibly have, President Gerald Ford. As I've said many times throughout this nation, he's a good and decent man, and no one could have a campaign that had to be so thoroughly organized, hard fought, and which has marshaled so much cooperation from hundreds of thousands of people around this country who've had confidence in me. And I pray that I can live up to your confidence and never disappoint you. Election night, 1976, Atlanta, Georgia. This is a golden moment. The kind you make statues out of. A moment in a life where everything comes together. The kind of moment you think about while you are contemplating making no more moments going forward. But let's get back to election night, 1976. A year prior to this, Jimmy Carter doesn't have a national profile. He is a name amongst many other names to see who would challenge the post-Nixon Republican Party. And the Democratic Party was a mess. They'd had riots at their last two conventions. Who the hell is Jimmy Carter? Well, Jimmy Carter's got an answer for you. He's from Plains, Georgia, population of 600. He's been a peanut farmer his entire life. His family's lived in that simple town for 150 years. Years. He's not Washington, D.C. He's not New York City. He is just who he is. And you want to know what? In an era of complication, simple is enough. As Jimmy Carter lies in hospice with his family at his home in Plains, Georgia, after living a long life that not only will include the story we are going to tell you as he came to prominence on the national stage, but also a tumultuous presidency and one of the kindest post-presidency legacies we've ever known. One in which he spent his time building houses for those who didn't have them had a 75-year marriage with his wife. It all started in the national spotlight in 1976. And that's the story we're going to tell you 
on this episode of the show. It's a lot of politics. And I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So our honor of Jimmy Carter is his greatest political achievement. My name is Justin Robert Young. This is Politics, Politics, Politics. But first. A lot of pushing. The man being pushed, watch it, they're going to knock that over. Delegate. The man is a delegate. Delegate. Check with our state chairman. He's an elected delegate. What are you trying to strong arm stuff? He's an elected delegate. You are. Check with the delegate. Where are the rules that say we must show him every minute? Who the hell are you? Are you the one they're trying to throw out? Yes, I am. Why are they trying to throw you out? I object to their behavior. I beg your pardon? I object to their behavior. Secret Service, push. He's an elected official. They're shouting Secret Service, push here. Although we are told that these are anti-frame operatives. And nobody is wearing the usual insignia of the Secret Service. So let's start here. We're going to go back a little bit before we get to 1976. This is 1968 at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. And it is a total mess. Delegates are pushing and screaming at each other. There is violence in the street. The police have to be called. One of those things, man, whenever we get into, oh my God, our politics are so crazy. We're ripping each other apart. Remember that the Democrats had riots at their conventions, two consecutive conventions in a row. And this one was the first. Let's just say that when it came to party unity, we were a long way away from JFK and high hopes. So this fight in particular, the 1968 fight, is about a million things, but one big thing. Let me describe it for you. Someone cut the line. Or rather, they did what they've done their entire political lives. See, even now, in 2023, I can't tell you the same thing. Here's here's what happened. Listeners to the first season of Raise the Dead, my history podcast, knows this story. But in 1960, the Kennedy family had a revolutionary idea. Instead of trying to get JFK elected at the convention, the way that everybody got elected up until then, that would require leaving Jack's fate in the hands of a bunch of political insiders who didn't like him and didn't like JFK's father, Joe, they would do what many thought to be very stupid. They would run in primary contests. So the reason why people thought primary contests were stupid was because you didn't have the opportunity to win enough delegates to win the nomination while running in primary contests. So if you lost in one, then you would just be looked at as some guy who loses an election. So the best bet was not to run in them. But Jack decided that in an era of television, seeing a bunch of successes strung together would matter, even if you would have to get the rest of the delegates at the convention. You could use that as the way to make your argument. So he did, and he won the presidency. If you want more about this, again, season one of Raise the Dead. 
After that, we have the bizarre 1964 election after Kennedy's assassination. That's season two of Raise the Dead. And then there's this, 1968. So there are two leading candidates this year. Eugene McCarthy, who participated and won in several primaries, and Hubert Humphrey, who didn't enter a single primary, and it's Humphrey who gets the nomination. This is a return to form to the way things were before JFK did what he did, and people are cheesed off. This leads to the McGovern-Frazier Commission, which essentially incentivizes state parties to have primaries, therefore putting more delegates into play and allowing for candidates to choke out another candidate's path to the nomination on the trail and not at the convention. It's truly a revolution. McGovern leaves before the convention is done to run for president, thinking that he now knows the blueprint and he does win the nomination, but he gets rolled by Nixon in 1972 in one of the biggest landslides we've ever seen. Which brings us to 1976, America's bicentennial. Here's the state of play for the Democratic nomination. Leading into the years before the 1976 election, there is one Democrat polling ahead of the field. Ted Kennedy. The Democratic love affair with the Kennedy family had not dimmed. Not after JFK was murdered, not after Bobby was murdered, and not even after Ted Kennedy's Chappaquiddick incident in 1969. For those too young, here's the cliff notes. Ted Kennedy is driving back from a party with a woman who is not his wife. Late at night, the car goes off a bridge. Ted escapes. The woman does not. The woman dies, and Ted doesn't notify authorities until the next morning. Here he is in 1969 discussing the event. My fellow citizens, I have requested this opportunity to talk to the people of Massachusetts about the tragedy which happened last Friday evening. This morning I entered a plea of guilty to the charge of leaving the scene of an accident. Prior to my appearance in court, it would have been proper for me to comment on these matters. But tonight I am free to tell you what happened and to say what it means to me. It's the kind of character-staining incident that would kill a political career for anybody not named Kennedy. Democrats are desperate to regain that feeling they had in 1960, and despite national embarrassment, many partisans believe that 1976 is Ted's time. Ted had refused to run in 1972, hoping to let the furor around Chappaquiddick die down. And as we enter into the political season for 76, well, it still hasn't. So he recuses himself from the race. Okay, if not Kennedy, who? Well, you know, that George Wallace fellow is polling pretty well. Today... I have stood where once Jefferson Davis stood and took an oath to my people. It is very appropriate that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, 
that today we sound the drum for freedom, as have our generation of forebears before us done time and again down through history. Let us rise to the call of freedom-loving blood that is in us and send our answer to the tyranny that clanks its chains upon the South in the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth. I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Well, now remember, the Democratic Party is different back then. That is Wallace when he was being inaugurated as governor of Alabama back in 1963. By the 76 primary, Wallace is moderated on segregation. Following the liberalizing of the Democratic Party, he says he's a moderate on racial issues, but a conservative Democrat all around. Still, look, Wallace is older than dirt, and this is his fourth try at the White House. Not exactly fresh. Speaking of not fresh, Hubert Humphrey is also rumored to want to run again. This dude lost against JFK in the 1960 primary, went to the White House with LBJ in 64, and spent the rest of his political career trying to get back there. The field for this nomination, though, in 76 is so chaotic that he notched a few polling wins in the mid-20s to low 30s. And through 1976, Announcing another run early would be a bridge too far for Humphrey. So Humphrey, who was of the generation that the baby boomers called boomers, did the most Humphrey thing of all. He waited until the convention to see if he would be called upon to serve. So old fashioned. All right. So the primaries exist now because of the McGovern thing. Who is actually going to be running in these? And Gerald Ford doesn't know what you're talking about when you talk about full employment. Uh, he says in his economic report that two years from now, if all goes well, there'll be seven million people unemployed. And you ask him, can we have full employment in this decade? And he says, no, we can't count on it. Well, that's not good enough. And my program is four initials, J-O-B-S, not B-S, the way that Gerald Ford and Richard Nixon been talking to you for the last seven years. That is Arizona Senator Morris Moe Udall of Arizona. He made the decision that these days feel like a perfunctory move. He was going to run in the Iowa caucus. Remember that until the commission, the Iowa caucus was just like any primary. It didn't mean much because you still could win the nomination at the convention. But now, momentum is the only currency. And the first contest is the place where it all starts. And yet, aside from Mo and Jimmy Carter, all the others that I have named, including George Wallace, decide to save their powder for other contests, reasoning that America's not really going to care until a few of these 
things are decided and then they'll start tuning in. And at that point, you don't want to waste money in an early contest. This proves to be hilariously foolhardy as the rest of history will teach us. But that's the reason why there's only effectively three people running in this contest. And the retail politics of Iowa, for which it is now famous, was first truly exploited by the peanut farmer from Georgia. Here is a local PBS retrospective about that campaign. It's a lot different than what it is now. It's a lot smaller. Iowa Press, Sunday, March 2nd, with guest Jimmy Carter, former governor of Georgia. I think to be disassociated with the horrible bureaucratic mess that exists in Washington right now is a political advantage. I think to have had a broad range of experience professionally is an advantage. I'm a farmer. I'm a full-time farmer. If I can exemplify what the American people would like to see in their president, then I'll be elected. If I can't meet those high demands, and I hope they are high, I don't deserve to be president. He was not afraid to go in and walk right up to people who had never set eyes on him, had no clue who he was, put out his hand and say, hi, I'm Jimmy Carter, I'm a peanut farmer from Georgia former governor and I'm running for president and I'm going to be elected president. He, he uh, had a lot of self-confidence. Tim Kraft ran Carter's campaign efforts in Iowa, leaning heavily on the Southern governor's interpersonal skills amid a cash-strapped, long-shot candidacy. When I first went to Iowa, I you know, took a quick stock of what we would need in terms of headquarters, phone lines, postage, staff, transportation, etc. And uh, I submitted a budget to Atlanta and they said, we, we haven't got that kind of money. So I had to argue with the, with the financial people in Atlanta to secure an initial budget of $18,020. As the campaign entered the fall of 1975, Carter's organization was gaining steam and taking part in an Iowa Democratic Party tradition. The occasion was the state Democratic Party's annual Get a Bucket of Chicken election year show and tell, the Jefferson Jackson Day Dinner. The event attracted seven presidential candidates, three correspondents from the major networks, and four national political reporters. We grasp at straws in this uh, business, you know, and if you can detect the slightest straw in the wind or uh, any kind of reaction to a candidate, it can be helpful in the very early stages. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It would suit me fine if all the candidates entered all the primaries and presented themselves to the voters. When I had first covered Jimmy Carter in Iowa, when he was traveling around campaigning in the fall of 75, and it was October, there were no other press around. There might have been a couple of print reporters around. We're fine. We've got a lot of good journalists here today that you'd be glad to meet. Uh, Johnny Apple from New York Times. But by the time we came back for the caucuses, believe it or not, there was Iowa press, there was national press there. Because it, it, by that point, people were connecting the dots with what McGovern, George McGovern, had done four years earlier. You know, our goal in, in Iowa is to come in first. That's what we want to do. I'm not sure we'll do it. On the Democratic side, State Chairman Tom Whitney says a heavier-than-expected turnout is delaying things. But uh, the results are slow. We've had the largest caucuses we've ever held, and, uh, or at least it appears that way, so they're going to come in a little slower than we thought. This is your first batch? Okay. We'll hold yours. Honey, what if you want a chip from 
At Iowa Democratic Party headquarters on caucus night, volunteers were still struggling to understand the delegate calculations, while media reporters turned to the resident expert, Johnny Apple of the New York Times. And we've got about 5% of the Democrats, and Carter is wiping them out, except for uncommitted. Political reporters, whether they're covering a race for mayor of Dubuque or president of the United States, are interested in who's going to win. It is true that I think that I understood how the system worked better than most of the reporters were here. Uh, I happen to be fascinated with such things, so I made it my business beforehand to understand it. It is also true that a lot of them came and looked at my lead. <laughs> I don't know what they did afterwards, because I didn't go and look at theirs. He didn't win the Iowa caucuses. He came in second. He was almost 10 points behind, uncommitted. But the fact that he did better than expected, the fact that the media was looking at him, that's what made all the difference. The media played a, the national media played a big role. Carter had taken McGovern's model and maximized it all the way to the White House. His playbook would be picked up and tested on the opposite side of the political aisle. All right, so he's second to uncommitted, but undeniably, a star is born. And now the national media has a darling, a charismatic character from Georgia who will talk to anyone who listens. And as his momentum continues, Carter takes New Hampshire, which is the next major contest. Are you getting a sense of why these contests still matter today? By that time, Senator Henry Scoop Jackson, who was also going to be running in the primaries, enters the race in Massachusetts and win. By that time, Senator Henry Scoop Johnson, who was also planning on running in the primaries, enters the race in Massachusetts. And he wins. But he's only stepping on the course to get run over. Carter takes Vermont. Florida, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Texas, Georgia, Indiana, and Washington, D.C. One by one, the rest of the challengers that started the race drop off. And now we reach the inflection point. Again, raise the dead listeners. Understand that this is a regular thing that happens. Whenever there is a candidate that is unknown to the party leadership, there is an inevitable antibody that seeks to attack it. The stop candidate movement. In this case, it was called the ABC. Anyone but Carter. Now, this strategy tends to fail a lot more often than it works. Failed against Barry Goldwater, failed against Donald Trump in 2016. It worked against Bernie in 2020 when all the moderate candidates decided to coalesce behind Joe Biden. But that's the way it needs to operate. Everybody needs to drop out at once. Everybody needs to endorse immediately. And it's got to happen in states that are delegate rich before things get too late. In 1976, the most popular latecomer was California Governor Jerry Brown. Here is a 1976 report by 60 Minutes about the rising star. See if you can uh, uh, detect the traces of drool on your uh, phone or computer by the time that it's done. 
Thoroughly confusing the American political scene this year are a number of men and women who defy the liberal and conservative labels, people who issue warnings rather than promises, who talk of America's limits rather than its growth, who tell us to expect less from government rather than more. The man who epitomizes the new politics of austerity is this man, Edmund G. Brown, Jr., the Democratic governor of California. Jerry Brown is the son of Pat Brown, former governor of California, a liberal Democrat who, in a sense, epitomized the old politics of abundance. The kind of straight talking that Jerry Brown engages in is something we expect from young theoreticians, not from elected officials, particularly the governor of the most populous state in the union. He's a phenomenon of sorts because, as a result of his promising less, he's the most popular governor the state's ever known. All you have to do is look at your grocery bill, your medical bill, your utility bill, your rent, your taxes, and it's just a, a fact of a life in this country that just to stay where we are, we have to try a lot harder. And I think people appreciate someone in government being honest with them and telling them that this is the way it's going to be instead of promising rosy tomorrows uh, with no pain and no uh, sacrifice, because that's not the way it's going to be. That is the essence of Jerry Brown's message to California, and by extension, to the nation. In only a year, he has managed to zoom to national attention. Every newspaper and television pundit has made the pilgrimage to California to examine the phenomenon. What they found was a 37-year-old ascetic, abrupt, often rude, an extremely private man, none of the good old boy politician about him. One of his first acts was to cut down the governor's personal staff, and he refused a raise for himself. He sold Ronald Reagan's Cadillac limousine and uses a 74 Plymouth. He sold the governor's executive jet and travels commercially. He sends back all the perks and gifts that pour into a governor's office, even the lifetime pass to Disneyland that goes with the job. The governor's office is hardly a fun place. He spends 12 hours a day in it, six days a week. Jerry Brown is as tight-fisted in state affairs as he is in his personal life. The three sacred areas of public spending in California, education, public health, and transportation, are no longer so sacred. One of the realities that we're facing is the state is assuming the role that was previously uh, played by the family. The state is supposed to provide child care, it's supposed to provide meals, it's supposed to provide food stamps, it's supposed to provide nursing homes, uh, you name it. Uh, the next thing we're supposed to do is give workman's compensation for wives, uh, and maybe that's a good idea. But when you cost out all the things that people used to do for free, and we take care of uh, our parents, take care of our kids, educate them, that's what we used to do maybe 50 years ago. Now you put that all onto the state, and you pay people a decent wage for doing it, the cost is astronomical, and not even the United States of America can afford to pay the bill. The governor lives in a bachelor apartment in this block next to the Capitol and pays the $250 a month rent out of his own pocket. He refused to move into the sprawling new governor's mansion that Ronald Reagan had built and has handed it over to the state to find some other useful purpose for it. Well, you want to know about the mansion? Well, let me tell you about the mansion. It's 12,000 square feet. Wow. We spent $1.5 million. We have nine bedrooms. And it looks kind of like a Safeway store. 
Governor, what made you decide to go into politics? What attracted you? What attracted me? I don't know. I mean, it just seemed like an interesting thing to do. And uh, what I'd known about it, my father was in politics. I suppose if my father was a doctor, I might have become a doctor. He happened to have been a lawyer and a governor, so I became a lawyer and a governor. Jeez, do you think the media love Jerry Brown or what? Holy moly. Unfortunately for him, and look, this was looked to be a star turn for him too. Everybody was just kind of assuming it was going to be a matter of time before Jerry Brown was president of the United States. And he was governor of California again while I was still living there. He, he left in 2019. Despite that late run at the nomination, he was essentially too late. No one could outpace what Carter had done. Carter had name recognition. Carter was exciting. And so in New York City, at the Democratic National Convention, the Democrats had what they'd lacked the previous eight years. Unity. Carter had the delegates, and all that remained was picking a running mate, which he did in Walter Mondale, a Minnesota liberal and protege to Hubert Humphrey. My name is Jimmy Carter, and I'm running for president. It's been a long time since I said those words the first time. And now I've come here after seeing our great country to accept your nomination. I accept it in the words of John F. Kennedy with a full and grateful heart and with only one obligation to devote every effort of body, mind, and spirit to lead our party back to victory and our nation back to greatness. After the break, the general election and the birth of a political icon as the chaotic opposition looks to steady itself from the Rose Garden. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you get to our Patreon. It's where you access our bonus content, bonus episode on Mondays, bonus episode on Thursdays. Double your episodes each and every week at the $3 a week level at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And now... Your quick hits. Tesla has announced that they will open an engineering headquarters in Palo Alto, California. Gavin Newsom attended that announcement where he renewed his bromance with Elon Musk. 
in East Palestine, Ohio, candidate Donald Trump said that the train derailment tragedy in that town has been met with indifference and betrayal by the Biden administration. He then went to a local McDonald's and bought food for the first responders. I do think that this was a smart tactical decision by Trump. I think that the more he highlights the America first credentials for himself, the better it is. It's, you know, the the kind of softball that the Biden administration leaves out there if they are not communicating more clearly about this particular tragedy. I do think that this has been a total fumbling of the ball specifically by Pete Buttigieg and whoever is deploying him. That man needs to not talk about politics for months. Just only talk about planes and trains and that's it. No, no, don't use him as a surrogate. Don't use him as an attack dog. It's really been used against him in these last few weeks. And finally, businessman and author of the book Woke Incorporated, Vivek Ramaswamy, has announced that he is running for president. Think of him as the Steve Forbes of this race, the Andrew Yang of this race. The only difference between those two that I just mentioned and Ramaswamy is that the other two had a bumper sticker kind of uh, a, a thing you know I, it was the, the the flat tax for Steve Forbes it was UBI for Andrew Yang I I think you know Ramaswamy has kind of come to prominence as being the anti-woke banking guy that doesn't resonate on Main Street like make my taxes simpler or free money in the mail so I think he still kind of needs a thing the thing that he will do And he didn't announce with it, so I don't quite know it's coming. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go to get more of this up-to-the-minute content. The late edition on, on Thursday, the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition, where we break down all of what the elites in media and politics want you to be talking about. And we decide whether or not it is important. It's all right there. Three bucks a week for less than the cup of coffee bought at a Manhattan Starbucks, you can get double the PX3 content you would otherwise get in our free feed. And of course, ads are in the free feed now. For only a dollar a week, you can get an ad-free feed. One dollar a week. Get an ad-free feed right here. TakePoliticsSeriously.com And now, back to the show. Across our land, a new beginning is underway, led by a man whose roots are founded in the American tradition.
my folks have been farmers in Georgia for more than 200 years. And we've been living around here for, oh, 150 years. He had to work every afternoon. He didn't, didn't have a chance to run around. We didn't have a car for him. And he had to come home every afternoon and work, work real hard out in the field. Everybody in the family loved each other. We had to work together. Uh, we didn't recognize hardships. We thought we were having a great life, and I think we probably were. And uh, it was a tight-knit uh, family life uh, bound together with love. I never did. I never did spank him. No, he was... I don't... Didn't I never did spank him. I might have been giving you a little lick in passing, but I mean, a real whipping, I never gave him one. That was, I left that with his father. Although I've had a good chance to get an education as an engineer and a scientist, nobody in my family before my generation ever had a chance to finish high school. We've always worked for a living. We know what it means to work. And it was the working people, not the special interests that Jimmy Carter represented as governor of the largest state east of the Mississippi. He gave them an administration responsive to their needs and proved that an efficient and well-managed government can be achieved. Jimmy Carter's candidacy is truly of the people and for the people. He spent the last 22 months listening, discussing, sharing his concern. People ask me every day, how can you stand for your husband to be in politics and everybody know everything you do? And I just tell them that we were born and raised and still live in Plains, Georgia. It has a population of 683, and everybody has always known everything I did. <laughs> and Jimmy has never had any hint of scandal in his personal or his public life. I really believe he can restore that honesty, integrity, openness, confidence in government that we so sorely need in our country today. I think he'll be a great president. I have a vision of America, a vision that has grown and ripened as I've traveled and talked and listened and learned and gotten to know the people of this country. I see an America poised not only at the beginning of a new century, but at the brink of a long new era of more effective and efficient and sensitive and competent government. I see an America that has turned away from scandals and corruption. I see an American president who governs with vigor and with vision and affirmative leadership. A president who is not isolated from our people, but a president who feels your pain and who shares your dreams. I see an America on the move again, united, its wounds healed. An America entering its third century with confidence and competence and compassion. An America that lives up to the majesty of its constitution and the simple decency of its people. This is my vision of America. I hope you share it, and I hope you will help me fight for it. On November 2nd, vote for Jimmy Carter. God, I long for a bygone era where the mother of a presidential candidate swears she never hit her son, beyond a licket, of course, because she left that to her father. <laughs> what a simpler time. That ad pretty much sums up Jimmy's pitch for America. I am a simple farmer, not a politician. I want a competent government free from scandal, something America is sick of post-Nixon and hasn't gone far away after Ford pardoned the disgraced former president. Carter is a reset button. 
But more than that, you want to know what? I, I genuinely believe after doing all the research for this episode that Jimmy Carter does not get enough credit as a politician. I do believe that if you want to be an insurgent, there is one campaign that you should be studying. And that's 1976 Jimmy Carter. I mean, listen to that ad and tell me you don't see the blueprint that Bill Clinton took to two terms. He even says the phrase, I feel your pain. Meanwhile, on the other side of the ballot. Tonight, I can tell you straight away, this nation is sound. This nation is secure. This nation is on the march to full economic recovery and a better quality of life for all Americans. It wasn't that way two years ago. But in one of our darkest hours, America suddenly had a new kind of president. I am acutely aware that you have not elected me as your president by your ballots. So I ask you to confirm me as your president, with your prayers. A new leader who had not sought the job, but was prepared for it. A tough man when he had to be. But above all, a decent man, who from his first hours has worked to restore the honor of the White House. When I came to this Oval Office, I tried to get people to speak up to me, even though they disagreed. I tried to um, make the atmosphere in the Oval Office more relaxed rather than austere and I just wouldn't be comfortable uh, making people snap to just because I'm president. So the net result is I think we have certainly created in the Ford administration a non-imperial presidency. He uh, likes to have the people on different sides of the issue in front of him in the office. He sits back and listens and relaxes, and uh, at the end of that, he is, feels he's much closer to the issue that must be decided than if he were merely to look at a piece of paper. There's one issue that which I disagreed on, and it's clear, and that's the issue of, of, uh, of busing. I mean, my feeling is different from that uh, of the other people's administration. But once again, I have the feeling that, that the president has taken my views into full consideration and weighing them, I, I can't say that his conclusion is wrong. He sets a very high standard and he does it in a way that is not objectionable or abrasive. He doesn't have to, uh, to holler or throw books to let a person know that they haven't performed up to the standard that he expects. This new and quiet style of leadership has not just ended a decade of tension between the people and their president. It's helped create a new optimism about America. Firm leadership against the Congress has helped bring inflation down. Steady leadership has helped produce four million jobs in 17 months. Decisive leadership has helped achieve a world at peace. Calm, dependable leadership has helped build a nation at peace. By keeping our cool and uh, working a good many hours, uh, we've gotten it all turned around. I think we'll do better with the Congress in the next two years. We certainly are doing better with the economy. Uh, we don't have any military conflicts to uh, uh, take our mind off of making a better quality of life here in the United States for 215 million Americans. 
we're on the brink in this country, in my opinion, because we did good things, made tough decisions in the last two and a half years, and I want to be president when we can really blossom in this uh, new era, the new third century of America. Forceful as with the vetoes, bold as with the Mayaguez, but always the power of the office tempered by the decency of the man. He's making us proud again. Right now I predict that the American people are going to say that night, Jerry, you've done a good job. Keep right on doing it. And, you know, Ford, I don't think ran a bad campaign. And again, I'm really only doing this on on media hits and and stuff like this. I've not done my full like raise the dead deep dive into this race. But I think that Ford made the best of a bad situation. He had the Nixon thing hung around his neck and he had to kind of shoot the gap because let's remember in the election that Nixon did a Watergate, he whipped whipped, whipped his opposition, something fierce. He whipped McGovern. So you have very popular policies with Nixon and yet a personally tarring scandal. And now Ford has to say, well, I'm going to do all the things you like, but I'm not going to be Nixon and I'm not tainted by Nixon. Don't pay attention to the fact that I pardoned him I'm just kind of a regular guy. Look at how likable I am. And Ford is likable. After the 1976 Democratic National Convention, Carter holds a sizable 33-point lead over Ford in national polls. However, as the general election wears on, Ford is able to narrow the gap. Who knows how much of that is because there was always going to be a narrowing Or was it the horse race and twists and turns of the campaign, which go as follows. In September, Ford and Carter participate in the first televised presidential debates since 1960. While Carter's performance was not the worst, Ford was viewed as winning that debate. So Carter and debates, not exactly in love with each other, as we'll see later. Ford effectively criticizes Carter as lacking the necessary experience and being vague on key issues. And Ford begins to hammer that in his ads. Testimonials of people on the street saying, I don't know, Carter just seems like he showed up. I'm just going to go with Ford. Additionally, there is a controversial Playboy magazine interview with Carter that is published during the campaign. In that interview, Carter admits that he's looked upon women with lust and he's committed adultery in my heart many times. Carter's comments are seen as inappropriate, especially with women and evangelical Christians. And he also used the word screw. (laughs) Which I think is among one of the more relatable things about Jimmy Carter. However, Ford's progress is halted by a serious gaffe of his own making. In the second presidential debate in early October, Ford asserted that, quote, there is no Soviet domination in Eastern Europe and there never will be under a Ford administration. 
He claims that countries like Poland did not see themselves as under Soviet control, and Ford refused to retract the statement for nearly a week despite criticism. His misstatement and stubbornness stalls his gains and allows Carter to maintain a modest lead through Election Day, which is where we are right now. ABC News presents Political Spirit of 76. This is the final chapter of this bicentennial election year. Tonight from ABC News Election Center in New York, the results. Election night. Good evening. I'm Harry Reisner at ABC Election Headquarters. With me are Barbara Walters and Howard K. Smith. And we'll be here for as long as it takes to determine exactly what happened tonight. At the moment, uh, in this first election of our third century, about 2% of the nation's precincts have reported. And in the popular vote, with about a million or a little bit more than a million votes counted, Gerald Ford is leading Jimmy Carter 53% to 47%. That falls in the classification of being interesting but not significant. We do, however, already have some projections. Howard K. Smith can tell us about one. Well, the first individual state projection we've had, Harry, is Kentucky. Kentucky goes to Jimmy Carter. ABC News projects that Carter will take uh, Kentucky with its nine electoral votes, thanks to the hard work done by Kentucky's congressional delegation and its governor, Julian Carroll, all Democrats. The interesting feature about that race is that uh, Carter won every group in the state, blacks, whites, Protestants, Catholics, people in cities, and people in rural areas. Uh, Barbara has a more significant result. Well, I have a result from Indiana. Indiana, ABC Project, has gone to President Ford. This was expected. It was close, but it was expected that Ford would win this. And had he not won it, it really would have been quite an upset. The blacks in Indiana voted nearly 90% for Jimmy Carter, and it was the biggest turnout of blacks in that state. It was a record number, but still it was not enough to offset President Ford's victory. 13 electoral votes in Indiana for the president. Do yourself a favor and take a look at this election map, 1976's election map, because it is a remarkable piece of cartography. It's the last time that the Democrats will sweep the South. It is one of the few times left that we will see California be a reliably red state. You know, old fiscal conservative Jerry Brown was uh, uh, certainly a part of that. But it's the end of the old Democratic coalition. It is it is the last time that we see it. Carter is able to rally the southern states. And that'll be the end of that for, for, for a good long time. But he notches the narrow win. Carter. 297 electoral votes to Ford's 1940. And that's it. You know, we're not going to spend a lot of time on what happened once he became president. Because, you know, too often, I believe Carter's presidency is written as a prologue to the Reagan revolution, which, not to take anything away from Reagan, but... I do believe that we should be able to look at these things apart from each other. And let me illustrate again 
that if you are daring to run as an insurgent, if you are daring to run without permission, I would say that the two campaigns that you should really study are Jimmy Carter in 1976 and Donald Trump in 2016. These were very, very, very impressive political performances. And you can see that blueprint, Carter 76's blueprint, in a lot of campaigns. I mean, the most recent was candidate Pete Buttigieg in 2020. Positioned himself as a common sense moderate who was untainted by Washington. I remember being in a high school gymnasium in Des Moines, seeing Pete Buttigieg speak and hearing him talk about balancing the budget, balancing the budget. He didn't stay with it for long, but those were the kinds of things that he was doing. And when you look back at this Carter campaign and you look at him talk about moderate fiscal policy and blah, blah, blah. You can see where he's drawing from. It should be no surprise that one of the last conversations that Buttigieg has had. It should be of no surprise that one of the last conversations Buttigieg had as a candidate in 2020 was with Jimmy Carter. And so everybody here at PX3, myself and, and Brett, who edits these Friday episodes, I want to offer my uh, my respect, my respect for an icon, uh, our oldest living president and somebody who, if you've ever rooted for the underdog, you got to understand what his campaign meant back then. Jimmy Carter, for as long as you are with us here at PX3, we salute you. Hail to the chief. Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Our show was edited by Brett Stewart. You want to email the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at px3tweets, and you can follow me on Twitter at justinryoung. On Twitch, we are px3live.com. If you want to share this podcast with your friends, family, or clergy, it is px3podcast.com. You want to support us with a one-time donation, it is paypal.me slash payjury. Our Venmo is justin-young-20. Our cash app is px3cash. And you can send anything you'd like in the mail. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at takepoliticsseriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. Our $1 tier, our Big Tent tier, and the ads are here. That means you never want to hear a programmatic ad again. You can get... On our ad-free feed, $1 a week. One measly dollar a week. The Big Tent. Head on over there. Of course, the $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Dustin, Jason, Andres, C. Garcia, El Paso, John, Matt, Craig Potts, MC Dradio, Unsafe DB Levels, Katie, Amanda, Yield, Pinball Shop, DP4, Bongo, Neemeister, Catherine, Todd, 
And vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Edison, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. BA select start. Dr. G, Neil, Char- Charles, Darren, 100-mile runner. Idris Arslandian, Blue Front, and the Lenina. DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic Terran. Molly's dashing debut. Miranda Janelle, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome. Brad, Richard, just another pilot. Middle-aged Mike who loves Frank got abducted. Utah, Jimmy, Montana, the Gen, A-L-D-L-D-L-D, really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua. You want to join their ranks? Just so simple. Head on down to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Well, that'll wrap us up today and for the week. Big cold front coming in this weekend. I hope everybody stays safe. It's going to remain pretty, pretty, pretty good here in Austin, which I'm very excited about because I'll actually be in town. Next week, if you are out in the San Francisco Bay Area, well, you can see we're not wrong live myself, Jen Briney and the Yankee Doodle Panther, Andrew Heaton. We will be at the Piano Fight theater in the dying days of that venue. Come on out and see us. Look us up on Eventbrite. But until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh, three. Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.